Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Good morning, and happy first Sunday of Lent. As Father Morgan mentioned, I'm Chip Webb, and a longtime member here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, And let me pray for us all briefly. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all your people's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, what comes to mind to your mind when you think of the wilderness? Are those thoughts positive, negative, or both? What is your first memory of being in the wilderness? The first memory that I can recall was a Cub Scouts camping trip in central Virginia. There were two mountains less than an hour away from us that had everyone's attention, Sharp Top and Flat Top. They are two of the three peaks of Otter, which you can access from the Blue Ridge Parkway. True to their names, Sharp Top has a pointed top, while Flat Top has a more or less smooth top. As kids, we used to argue about which one was the larger mountain. To my eyes, and seemingly the majority of kids, Sharp Top looked bigger. But when a ranger visited our school, we learned that it was actually Flat Top. Well, we went camping underneath Flat Top and hiked up it on our Cub Scouts expedition. And that journey was a mixed bag weather-wise. It started either sunny or cloudy, but as we traversed upward, it became clear that rain was coming. Some of us Cub Scouts started worrying, and we could see our adult leaders conversing together up ahead, which only increased some of our fears. They finally told us to stay in place next to these big, for eight and nine-year-olds, rocks. And the rain indeed did come in the form of a thunderstorm. I remember huddling close to a rock while the rain poured wondering whether we were going to be stuck there for ages or even whether one of us might get hit by lightning. But thankfully, the rain stopped with no one hurt, and we resumed our journey. As we went down the mountain, the sun came out, and the previous fears dissipated. A frightening or potentially frightening experience in the wilderness had passed, replaced by joy and happiness. We've just been considering an earthly wilderness, Now let's turn attention to our spiritual wildernesses. Think back in your memory to one. Was it one primarily marked by temptation to sin as Jesus underwent, as we just heard about in our gospel reading? Or perhaps was it marked by extensive actual sin? Or was it one not marked by sin? or not particularly by sin, but by the seeming absence of God? Or was it marked by a combination of any of the options I just mentioned, or something entirely different? Our spiritual wildernesses 
can take on a variety of forms. And we have just entered the season of Lent. Last week, our gospel reading took us high up to the Mount of Transfiguration, as the church lectionary always does the last Sunday of Epiphany, just prior to Lent. This week, our gospel reading takes us from, from there down into the wilderness, again as it does every single first Sunday of Lent. And during Lent, the church invites us to undertake what we might call wilderness practices in a roughly six-week preparation for following our Lord Jesus Christ through his suffering and death during the three-day period that we call the Triduum, which includes Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, before finally reaching the celebration of his glorious resurrection during the great feast of Easter. Those Lenten wilderness practices might include special attention to areas in our lives needing repentance, as we heard on Ash Wednesday, periods of fasting, other voluntary decisions on our parts to give up things that normally are important to us, times of seeking to work through reconciliation issues with other people, extensions of our charitable giving, increased time of scriptural meditation and prayer, adoption of a new spiritual practice, and so much more. In fact, while our Book of Common Prayer never frames it this way, I think it's fair to surmise that the Church has given us Lent in part from a compassionate understanding that we will all encounter intense spiritual wildernesses throughout our lives, and that we need times of practice with wilderness disciplines in order to prepare for them. Allow me to make one big side big picture side point regarding the trajectory of our gospel reading at this Lent before we examine our scripture passage. After we look at the wilderness this week, next week we examine Jesus' announcement of his journey to Jerusalem and prediction of his death and resurrection to to his disciples. Then on the third Sunday of Lent, we look at Jesus in the temple and his prediction of his resurrection. On the fourth Sunday of Lent, we consider the feeding of the 5,000. And then on the fifth Sunday of Lent, we meditate on the coming of the Greeks to Jesus and the significance of that. You can find the readings in our Book of Common Prayer. These readings do not cover events in chronological order. One fun Lenten practice might be to think about why the church orders the readings in that way and what that flow tells us about both our Lord and Savior and the Lenten journey that the church invites us to undertake. If you want, join me in that contemplation. And so this Lent, we are dropped in our gospel reading first into Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. Verses 9 through 11 of Mark chapter 1 were preached upon by Father Morgan just a few weeks ago on the first Sunday of Epiphany, the baptism of our Lord's Sunday. So we will skip to just examining verses 12 and 13. Now I know that two verses with Mark's very brief writing style isn't a lot of text. But Matthew and Luke give us many more details about the temptations Jesus experienced. Nevertheless, there's still a lot of considerations, implications, and potential applications here for us as we look at our own spiritual wildernesses and our Lenten journey this year. And there are three matters that we should examine today in the context of this passage. Number one, how we are led by God into spiritual wildernesses. Number two, 
the intensity of temptations in our spiritual wildernesses. And number three, the sustenance provided us in spiritual wildernesses. So number one, how we are led by God into spiritual wildernesses. Verse 12 tells us that after Jesus' baptism, he was, quote, immediately, unquote, driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. Immediately might well have been Mark's favorite word. It appears many times in the gospel. Mark pretty much always emphasizes the urgency of situations. Now let's stop and think for a second. Jesus, God the Son, has just heard from God the Father that he is the, quote, beloved Son, unquote, of his Father. Beloved Son is a probable reference back to Psalm 2, chapter 2, Psalm 2, verse 7. A messianic verse where God affirms to David that his kingly line will be perpetuated forever. And then Jesus hears that God the Father is, quote, well pleased, unquote, with him. An affectionate, loving sentiment. And yet, even with these terms of endearment from God the Father, God the Son is driven out into the wilderness by the third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Is this fair? What kind of father would allow or even direct his beloved son to go from the heights of fatherly commendation immediately to a deserted locale to suffer temptations? Or what kind of heavenly ruler would allow or direct the visible expression of his earthly reign to undergo such indignity? Plus, Mark says that the Holy Spirit, who we know of from other scriptures as the helper, as in John chapter 14, verse 16, drove, quote, drove, unquote, Jesus into the wilderness. So let's address Mark's choice of the word translated drove first. Craig Evans, in a commentary on Mark, suggests that it is extremely unlikely that Mark wanted to communicate any sense of harshness. Instead, the emphasis is on the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit works, things happen. This word, drove, then, goes along with Mark's general sense of urgency. Back to our big question of whether this is fair. There is at least one theological answer that bears serious consideration. Jesus is being driven into the wilderness immediately after receiving God's blessing, title, and calling at the River Jordan parallels the nation of Israel's being called out of Egypt by name and passage through the Red Sea only to be led into the wilderness by God. God's pattern with the nation of Israel is experienced by the fulfillment of Israel's promises, Jesus Christ. Now that should comfort us a great deal as Christians. Israel went into the wilderness and failed the test. In fact, Israel kept failing to live up to God's covenant and to being the light to the nations that God desired it to be over centuries. Its track record was so fraught that the Pharisees of Jesus' time had added many regulations to aid Israelites in keeping the law. This was not because they were only concerned about external appearances and unconcerned with the heart, as some Christians believe. 
Rather, as Anglican theologian N.T. Wright has written about many times, the Pharisees generally were incredibly devout individuals who were working the best they could to help Israel keep all of God's commandments so that Israel would be the covenant people that God desired. So Israel's failures in the wilderness and beyond still reverberated at the turn of the first century. But now the, but now the true Israel, Jesus Christ, came into the world to correct that matter. But let's be honest. For many of us, Jesus' role as the fulfillment of Israel's, and indeed all the world's, hopes and dreams might indeed comfort us to a certain degree, but not always if we apply it to our own spiritual wildernesses. How many times have spiritual wildernesses come upon us seemingly out of nowhere and without warning? Why would God allow that if we are his beloved children? Why does God let any one of us be afflicted with financial, health, or familial difficulties? Why might he allow our children to wander far from the faith, even after we spent 18 or more years raising them in it and doing our best to convey the importance, wonder, and joy of it? For these and many other questions, there are no easy answers. And so sometimes we let them settle somewhere compartmentalized in the back of our minds. If so, maybe Lent 2024 is the time to bring those undealt with disappointments with God out of those dark corners. Maybe it's time to wrestle with God in prayer about them and be emotionally honest about um, them with him in his presence. Maybe it's time in such cases to read the Psalms or other portions of scripture for comfort. Or maybe it's time to, for the first time, bring up these matters with a wise, mature Christian friend, or to seek pastoral counseling from Father Morgan. So one Lenten discipline along these lines can be learning or relearning to be honest with God about your feelings of how he has let you down. He can take it. A second could be to seek Christian counsel about those hurts. Either one would take you along a Lenten spiritual wilderness journey. And for right now, remember the incredible truth that God is always good in his leading, even though sometimes that is very difficult to believe. Remember the words from our psalm today, which could be a Lenten theme. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. As we, as we said in Psalm 25, eight, verses 8 through 10. So how many paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for anyone who turns to him? All of them. God's purpose is always one of character formation to the image of Christ. So that's a consideration of number one, um, how we are led into our spiritual wildernesses. Consideration number two, the intensity of our temptations in our, in our spiritual wildernesses. 
Verse 12 talks about how Jesus got from the Jordan to the wilderness. Verse 13 gives us Mark's brief description of that time. Quote, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Unquote. Jesus being 40 days in the wilderness continues the parallels with the nation of Israel, which wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, Jesus has come to be faithful where Israel was not. What about the curious mention of wild animals with no accompanying explanation? Scholars are divided on this matter. Some believe that the image is of a peaceable kingdom. To use the title of the famous Edward Hicks painting, based on Isaiah 11.6. In this case, Jesus would have been in the wilderness coexisting peacefully with the wild animals while temptations ensued. Now, I love this idea. It's wonderful to think that the animals who were subjected to frustration at the fall were calmed by the presence of the one who created them. Craig Evans, in his commentary, admits this is possible. But on the whole, I think, that, I think that most scholars, including Evans, are probably correct in concluding that the animals are meant to show the foreboding environment in which Jesus faced temptation. In other words, Jesus' temptations were intense due to their nature, and even more so given the surrounding locale and denizens. Well, beyond Jesus representing faithful Israel, I think there's another role for Jesus here that we have to consider. And to do that, let's think about the cast of characters that we have inhabiting this wilderness besides Jesus. What are they? There's Satan, the leader of the fallen angels. There's the wild animals. There's the non-fallen angels that are ministering to Jesus. Where have we seen all of these together before in the scriptures? In Eden practically where the big story of the Bible begins. Given that fact, who haven't we mentioned in the cast of characters? Human beings. But Jesus is here as the second Adam. The second Adam has come to represent all of humanity facing temptation. And there are other scriptural passages that deal with this, like Romans 5. Where Adam failed, Jesus will now prove faithful. What a glorious Savior we have. That's a great comfort. But it still doesn't take away the intensity of the temptations that we sometimes face in our spiritual wildernesses. How many of us have had sins that, have, that tempted us and tempted us and tempted us and we held out and held out and held out and finally fell. How many of us had that happen despite fervent prayers, perhaps accompanied with tears? How many of us heard either indirectly through Christian leaders speaking about it to a broad audience or directly through brothers and sisters in Christ to our faces that there was something lacking in our spiritual lives if that occurred. How many of us have had besetting sins that have lasted with us through decades, despite our sincere piety, even if we only consider the sins to be minor ones? 
I suspect that we human beings are so fallen that besetting sins of some type are impossible to avoid. And some people who have turned to Christ sometimes worry even that they will be damned for their sins, despite the scripture's assurance to the contrary. Or other doubts occur, perhaps about major theological issues, perhaps about more personal and practical scriptural promises. Critically here, let us recognize in the midst of our painful temptations that uncertainty is not an enemy because the Christian faith allows for mystery. In fact, demands mystery. No one will ever understand the Holy Trinity anywhere close to fully, at least not in this life and perhaps not the next. The Calvinism-Arminianism debate over God's sovereignty and human agency will never be resolved in this life because scripture seems to point toward elements of both. Yesterday I gathered with, with old college campus ministry friends via Zoom. One said, now I understand why the Bible speaks so much about young people respecting their elders. When I was young, I was certain about so many things, including about theology. That's not true anymore. And when dealing with the intensity of temptations in our spiritual wildernesses, remember the rainbow that God set in the sky as a symbol of his covenant with all of humanity, promising never again to destroy all life, as we heard about in today's Old Testament lesson. Rich Mullins, in his song, The Howling, wrote, I can see the covenant colors. The, blue, the sun and the rain have woven across the blue of the sky. And I know if we live, we will live by his promise. And I know he who made it, and I'm sure that he would not lie. Personally, sometimes when I see a rainbow, I'm elated and exclaim, God's promise. God's covenant promises are true. Jesus as faithful Israel and the second Adam confirms that covenant. For he died in our place and victoriously defeated Satan in his cross and resurrection. So we've looked at how we are led into spiritual wildernesses. We've looked at the intensity of temptations in spiritual wildernesses. And now let's look at number three, the sustenance provided us in spiritual wildernesses. We are told by Mark that, quote, the angels were ministering to him, unquote, in the wilderness. Craig Evans notes that this detail probably echoes God's provision of an angel for Elijah during his 40-day fast, which you can read about in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 4 through 8. God does not leave us unaided in our spiritual wildernesses. He might not answer our fervent prayers the way we would like or expect him to do. He did not do that this week for me during a major health crisis. However, if we look back at the event later with the eyes of faith, we will see how he sustained us. And the church would not ask us to undertake Lenten wilderness practices if it were true otherwise. Consider this as well. In our spiritual wildernesses, where is Jesus? 
He's with us, even if we do not feel his presence. The good shepherd who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, as we read in Psalms, Psalm 23, verse 4, certainly is with us in all of our lesser spiritual wildernesses as well. In fact, consider this. In the verses we have just examined, we have seen Jesus depicted in his threefold office. We first saw him as king, as the beloved son who fulfills all the promises to David, yet who is still driven into the wilderness. We next saw him as priest, as the second Adam come to apply the remedy for the fall that has afflicted all of humanity. And finally, we saw him like a prophet ministered to by angels. Jesus, in all of his functions, is with us during our spiritual wildernesses. Let me add one more potential source of sustenance that cannot be underestimated. Spiritual songs, including older hymns and contemporary worship. Some of us will lean toward one of those two categories more than the other, while others will tend toward a mixture. Any of those options is fine. When considering our spiritual wildernesses and this passage in Mark, the second verse of the hymn, It is well with my soul, rings in my ears. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless, helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And don't miss the wisdom of African-American hymns and spirituals, which often point toward the wilderness as a place that is both left and as a place where Jesus is met. So to summarize, number one, we will be led by God into spiritual wildernesses, even at times suddenly, but not haphazardly. Instead, the goal is conforming us into the image of Christ. Number two, we will experience incredibly intense temptations within spiritual wildernesses, and even times in which God's promises of escape seem not to be true. But we will not be abandoned or destroyed. Instead, God's covenant promises remain firm. Number three, we will be sustained in our spiritual wildernesses. At times, we might not see that sustenance at all. But looking back with the eyes of faith, we should see it. So, are you ready for adopting Lenten wilderness practices with the knowledge that they can help us with incredibly intense spiritual wildernesses that we will experience at different points in our lives. I hope and pray that we all are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.